Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, a true crime memoir 30 years in the making finally sees the light of day. My cousin was in the position of reenacting a crime he hadn't committed. Plus, we wrap Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month with a day at the Kentucky Derby. Derby hats, cartwheel hats, feathers, and fascinators at Churchill Downs, each one a ringed planet. But first, Ramona Emerson is author of her first novel, Shudder. She appeared recently at Left Coast Crime this past March in Tucson. The book is set on the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, and the central character is haunted by ghosts of victims while also facing the real danger of an Albuquerque cartel. Coming in completely green and learning it from the bottom up um, quickly while I'm writing the novel, I think in a way helped me to use my film storytelling work as a way to tell the story. So when you read the book, you'll notice that it's a very visual book. It's interesting learning that about your past because, of course, the title is Shudder, and it's set on the Navajo Nation, uh, the portion of which is in New Mexico, and it features a central character named Rita. First off, why did you want to feature the nation as the setting, and can you tell us more about Rita, who she is, what motivates her? Rita is a forensic photographer who works for the Albuquerque Police Department, and she is also Dine and comes from a place named Tohatchi, New Mexico, which is where I come from. And I think the reason why I wanted to make sure that this story took place uh, on the reservation is because I think we need to tell our own stories and talking about where we come from and giving people a real dose of reality of what it's like to be a Navajo person, a Dine woman, and what it's like to be that same person in the city and working with people who are not Dene, who don't have the same kind of cultural beliefs that you do. So it's a lot of Rita being able to pivot and work and persevere despite some pretty heavy lifting that she has to do. And in the process of all of this story and her work as a forensic photographer and then her background on the Navajo Nation, she also has this curse or gift, depending on how you look at it, to speak with people who have crossed over, people who have died. And how does that play into both sides of her story? I wanted, you know, people to see a real portrait of what it's like to be a Dene woman growing up, both on the reservation and in the city. Right, and central to the plot is that, as you alluded to, Rita finds herself really haunted by the ghosts of victims because, you know, she's having to go to these scenes and and photograph these victims. But she also faces the very real danger of the present with Albuquerque cartels, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And the police department, uh, strangely enough. I live here in Albuquerque, and I've seen the town really turn dark over the last 10 years. It's been very heavily influenced by cartels, and our own police department has been under investigation for many, many years now for um, their abuse of power and shooting first and asking questions later, which is kind of like what everyone does around here in Albuquerque these days. 
it's a very real and visceral threat. And I think that as a Native woman who lives in this environment, Rita is very representative of other Native women who live in the Southwest who live in these really violent places for us and how we're able to survive and stay safe within those spaces. I think it's something like Native women who are killed on reservations, their cases are 10 times less likely to be solved. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's high. Yes, it's very high. And a lot of that is jurisdictional issues and lack of resources. But, you know, I think what it really comes down to is just the fact that Native women have long been ignored. Um, As, you know, when, when things happen to Native women, people just don't know. And it's just now very recently becoming a visible national issue but it has been an issue on the Navajo Reservation and on surrounding border town communities on Pueblos and, and Apache lands and everywhere where big towns surround Native communities. But it's important, and I'm glad that it's finally being looked at and being seen as a real issue. Ramona Emerson is author of Shudder. It's a fictional novel and came out last year, so it's widely available. Ramona, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You can find out a bit more about Ramona Emerson and the book Shudder on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a Valley-based poet turned sleuth digs through 30 years of archives about his cousin, whom he believes was wrongly convicted of murder in 1950s Austria. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Rio Salado College is proud to offer affordable online bachelor's degrees in high-demand fields such as teaching and public safety administration. Invest in your education and career without financial burden. More information at riosalado.edu. You want to know, and you can rely on KJZZ. It's more than just a sports arena. It'll have the Rodeo Drive of Arizona with high-end shops and high-end dining that Tempe deserves. KJZZ is the Valley's news leader and your source for a variety of information. Listen to KJZZ on air, online, and on your phone. More than ever before, KJZZ depends on donations from listeners to fund all of the crucial resources behind every moment of our coverage. So please be generous now and become a member of KJZZ at kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Out of the dozens of conversations we've engaged in on Word over the years, you've never heard anything like the next one. David Chorlton is a Valley-based poet who recently released a true crime memoir, 30 Years in the Making. It's titled The Long White Glove. It's a deep-dive investigation into a family member from his native Austria who was convicted of a horrific crime. Chorlton opened a recent convo with me by describing his connection to the story, which began decades ago. It's a long and convoluted explanation to be sure, but in the interest of modern meme culture, wait for it. The connection began on one of our family visits to Vienna. I I don't sound as though I was born in Austria, but I was. And I was growing up in Manchester, England. My mother was from Vienna. And we would go visit the family. And on the occasion of our visit in 1963, 
There was a huge family panic being discussed, magazines, newspapers on the table, people talking rapidly in Viennese dialect and smoking cigarettes. Nobody would really tell me what had gone on, except it was about your cousin Gerhard. He's done something. And as I found out what he had done or been accused of doing was raping and murdering a 13-year-old girl in a park near Vienna in 1961. And he had, by this time, confessed to that. And for several years, it was just an uncomfortable fact that I knew the family wasn't supporting him very much. But I moved to Vienna in 1971, and I spent a lot of time with an uncle of mine who was convinced that this cousin was innocent. And... Many of my evenings were spent listening to him going through old newspaper articles and scraps of evidence and basically trying to concoct his own ways of finding out who the real perpetrator had been. And, you know, even going on a couple of, you know, rather loosely constructed amateur detective missions. My uncle eventually disappeared. I think the project got the better of him. Sure. And I moved to this country in 78, still disturbed by the story as I knew it, you know, as a miscarriage of justice, but I had no idea who the perpetrator may have been. And so it was a 1993, 30 years ago, uh, I went back and hoped I would find out the missing parts. And I came back with 450 photocopied pages from newspapers, legal documents, accounts of things that my cousin had been forced to do in in the process of getting to a trial. And from those details, I was able to fill in the whole story. And I also met a reporter, a man named Ernst Aden, who had worked on this case, and he had already found out about, and years before, written an account in the newspapers of this case. And I went to visit him. And he basically told me why my uncle was all wrong. The things that he had tried to do were just mistaken. Um, So anyway, I came home with all this material. And I had a story to try and work out. And it, it just took a while to do it. Were you proceeding from the notion that your uncle was wrong or right or somewhere in between? Well, it was somewhere in between. He was right in knowing that this young man was innocent. He never actually came up with a perpetrator. I remember us going to visit a couple of people. Actually, one was a a woman was suspected her husband of being a serial killer. And um, we found a reason to go and visit him rather casually. So this was the strangeness of that time for me. But he never came up with an answer. Eventually, we did research in newspapers. And, you know, one night we were researching things. And after that, he pretty much disappeared from my life. He just didn't contact me anymore. And when he did, it was in a very strange way, which, you know, I suspect his sanity had suffered through this. He also was convinced that the police were on his case, as it were, and they did apparently 
call him in now and then to see if he had any news. And they were very happy when he didn't. Do you um, think that the police suspected him? Not of murder. The police had their murderer selected and tried and convicted. They did not want that situation to be disturbed. That's my conclusion from looking at the whole story. The trial was not what you would call a fair trial. The newspaper man I spoke with wasn't even allowed to testify wow. with evidence that he had overheard the police discussing. You know, in that system of law, if you confess to a crime, right, you will then have to go and reenact it. So my cousin was in the position of reenacting a crime he hadn't committed. And naturally, he would make many wrong moves. And, you know, I happen to have a transcript of everything that was said in the process of that. And, you know, if he made a mistake, he would just have someone from the authorities say, no, no, you must have gone over here and done it this way. Wow. So they that, ended up with a version that was defensible for them. Yeah, and that's just so hard, I think, for folks to understand. Why would you admit to something like that? And why would you let other people fill in the details and not really make an attempt to exonerate yourself? That leads to a further issue about why I'm even interested in in keeping up with this story. And it comes down to that point that mostly as a result of studying this case, I don't believe that a confession should ever be allowed into a courtroom. A confession is damaging enough during an investigation. But my cousin was somebody who was obviously something of a loner. I met him sometime before all of this trouble broke out. And he was somewhat quiet, reserved. His father believed him and my uncle, of course, but he didn't have a body of family support. He couldn't afford a good lawyer. He had, in fact, killed a man, which he knew, which was the main reason he got into police custody in the first case. As it turned out, I learned from talking to the reporter, Mr. Aben, that that was self-defense. And, oh, wow. and you know, this was Austria in the 1960s. And I know the country well enough to be able to see the degree to which all the experiences of the 30s and the 40s, I think, had generated a sense of respect for authority. And people believed the government, any major social figure, and certainly the law, that this was not something that one challenged, which was part of the reason, I think, that the family stayed clear of it all. But for a young man who knows he has done something wrong or thinks he has, and the police don't let him explain that, he just wanted at the end of a long interrogation process, it was that moment of saying, okay, okay, just leave me alone if you want to think I did it, and I did it. We have actually seen these kinds of things in modern television yeah. drama. They work a confession for hours and mm -hmm. hours at a time, and that winds up to be the case. 
I can't say this is necessarily unique to Austria in my personal opinion and observation. And I also think that, you know, you touched on a point about being in the 1960s. I think that was a classic case for Americana as well. Just this notion of there was a clear sense of what was right and what was wrong. And if a person was arrested by God, they were guilty, whether they confessed right right or not. A super interesting book, The Long White Glove, Uncovering the Truth Behind a Murder Mystery from Vienna, is a work by David Charlton, who is also an avid poet. David, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Well, thank you. I appreciate any chance to talk about this. There are a lot of issues in it that became unexpectedly important to me, and um, I hope they can be taken to heart. You can find out a bit more about David Charlton and The Long White Glove on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, we wrap this episode with a nod to Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and a day at the Kentucky Derby. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. It's getting hot out there, so you may be spending even more time indoors, or at least on the patio. Ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ for the news and entertainment. Keep cool and connected with your public radio station. Just say, play KJZZ, and your smart speaker becomes a radio. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. It's time to plan your summer road trip. If you have a vehicle that won't be a part of your trip to San Diego or Yellowstone, donate it to KJZZ. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. And thanks. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Among many things, it's the end of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and our final guest, Karen Rigby, identifies as Asian American. She also has an upcoming collection of poems titled Fabulosa that's due out next year. When we caught up recently, Rigby began by telling me how she arrived in the valley and what she thinks are some great steps to take in becoming a good writer. I was born in Panama, and then I lived in Pittsburgh and Minneapolis before I came here to the Valley. And I've been writing the entire time since I was a child. So for me, writing poetry has always been a way to make a record of my own life or to bring all of my curiosity and experiences onto the page with a certain kind of intensity. I mean, I'm drawn to that kind of challenge, and I also enjoy it. Is that something that you were taught at a young age in terms of poetry? Is there something particular about poetry that interested you, maybe more than fiction, for instance? Well, I actually started by reading a whole lot of fiction, and I became interested in poetry a little bit later, around middle school. I read a lot of Emily Dickinson and other poets. We did not have the type of creative writing emphasis, per se, where I was in the Midwest. In terms of the schools that you went to, did you have that aspect available to you, or was it hard to find formal creative writing classes? I never had any of it either in elementary, junior high, or high school. It wasn't until I went to college at Carnegie Mellon, specifically for a degree in creative writing, and then I went 
for an MFA in Minnesota. So it wasn't until later in life that I had that kind of formal workshop. You have a new book of poetry coming out in 2024. It's called Fabulosa. So folks will have to wait for it. However, they can check out your other work on your author page. Can you talk to me a little bit about the upcoming collection, your mindset behind it, and what types of writing folks might kind of expect? For instance, I noticed that you seem heavily influenced by nature in some of the writing that I read online and how it affects people. Well, Fabulosa gathers the strange and, like the title suggests, the fabulous, the glamorous, whether that means poems about fashion or paintings or that have a sense of the cinematic in persona. It's also my most autobiographical work that I've done yet. You could say that it mixes a few of my favorite things. It's like a collection or a small museum, in a sense, at a particular point in time. But there's also a subtler, subtler story about how people turn towards the arts when they want to find a way out of their own grief or to find a way of healing or meaning. For folks who are younger, who have a passion for writing, but maybe not much direction, what advice would you have for younger writers who are serious about it at a young age and want to try and get some attention? I think when you're young, the most important part would be to be a reader and to be a close reader of many topics, not only poetry or fiction, but outside of your own interests, just to have a richer vocabulary, to have an idea of how other writers have gone about forming their work. So before seeking attention necessarily, I would say to turn inward and to really focus on having these inner resources to draw from. It's a great idea because it's almost like you need to know yourself first, right? It helps to be reflective so that what you're writing is not just in the heat of the moment. I mean, that's good for the early drafts, but when you're really trying to shape it and work at a craft, it's just so vital to have had all of these other models and all of these other writers that you've taken in as well. Do you happen to have a short poem of your own that you'd like to read for us? Yes, I'd be happy to. This is a poem from the collection that's about hats at the Kentucky Derby. There's a reference to Gloria Swanson because the movie Sunset Boulevard left a really deep impression on me. So hopefully it gives you a sense of connecting a certain strangeness with the beautiful. Derby hats, cartwheel hats, feathers and fascinators at Churchill Downs, each one a ringed planet. Give me the black picture hat, danger slung over one eye, a hat to stop thoroughbreds in their paddocks. Not the eye caramba hat, loud as a multiplex, or the upbeat Breton in pastel straw, but the milliner's best fabulosa hat, paired with elbow-length gloves. You know the one, Gloria Swanson's poolside brim taking its place in the sun. Not the veiled pillbox, revival peach baskets, buckets or cloches. I want the glamorous panthers skulking right in the center of the grandstand. The silk funereal hat adorned with nothing but a lethal pin. The merciless hat, the damned hat blocked on a wooden mold shaped to midnight perfection. Had a villainous wears on coastal drives. I want the Hollywood hat to motor in, the hat they'll book me in. Oh, wow. That touched me in so many regards because, first off, I love hats. Secondly, I have been to the Kentucky Derby numerous times as uh, my family 
Most of them actually grew up or lived in the Louisville area, some of the Lexington area as well. Have you ever had a chance to go to the Kentucky Derby? I haven't, but I love the pageantry, just the fashion. It's incredible. It sure is. And I think you captured all of that very well. Karen Rigby has a book of poetry coming out next year. It's called Fabulosa. And Karen, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and reading for us as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You can find out a bit more about Karen Rigby and the upcoming book of poetry, Fabulosa, on our website, word.kjzz.org. We'd like to thank the members of KJZZ who provide monthly sustaining gifts of support. Now it's your turn. Please become a member by clicking on the Donate tab at kjzz.org or the mobile app. Portions of Word have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. We're back in mid-June with our final episode for this season. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.